Genesis chapter 33. I'm going to give a pitch for next week for Genesis chapter 34. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, Genesis chapter 34 is one of the most horrific chapters in all of the first book of Genesis. It is grotesque and awful. And so we are going to be discussing rape and sexual assault next week. And I give you the heads up because in a group this size, it is inevitable that some of you have suffered and or offended in what we're going to read about in Genesis chapter 34. Um, And so I just want to give you the heads up so you're not caught off guard One reason. Two, so if you don't want your children to be exposed to that topic, that you make provisions accordingly. And then uh, three, you can invite your friends or your family who may have suffered with sexual assault or sexual violence. The content of that sermon, just so you know, the subject matter will be for mature audiences. Um, Not that others shouldn't have it, but if we're talking about rape and sex assault, you you already know there's going to be some heavy stuff, all right? So Genesis 34, next week. Um, I look forward to seeing what God has to say through the hope of the gospel to to that most painful of offenses. So, all right, Genesis 33. Someone once said that the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. (laughs) <laughs> right? The more you get to know people, the more I love my dog. Uh, that I wonder that maybe because we're all about, all of us, are about as welcoming as a porcupine at times, or vana, all right? Pricking those who get closest to us. Generally, those who are in the closest orbit of our existence, so if you're married, your husband or wife, if you have children, or if, you're, if you are a child, then your brothers or sisters, generally those in the closest realms to us are the ones that we prick and poke the most often. So as we talk about Jacob and Esau, I wonder if Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, was one of the first ones to utter that line, right? Uh, the more I get to know people, especially my brother, the more I love my, my sheep and my goats, right? Why? Because Jacob was a schemer his whole life. If you're just joining us, let me introduce you real fast to Jacob and Esau. They're twin brothers. Esau's the older. He was born first. Jacob is the younger. And Jacob stole what would be modern day. Jacob stole the inheritance on his dad's deathbed, and his dad was blind to make it even worse. So he didn't know which twin. All right, this is a, uh, what was that Olsen movie the kids were in? Those, those Olsen girls, I forget, the twins, right? The, the, whatever the parent is, they trade places, okay? This is what happened. Jacob traded places with his twin brother, and he stole the inheritance from his blind dad. Nice guy, all right? And so as a result of that, I want you to understand, this would have altered, in Esau's mind, this would have altered the course of his life. And because of that, he wanted to murder Jacob. He comforted himself, this is, the Bible says, he comforted himself with thoughts of his brother's murder. <laughs> this is how angry Esau was at 
Jacob. And he was able to do it. Esau was a man's man. He was strong. He was a hunter. He was good with a bow. He was your, your typical rugged, Kanak local dude who could just do what he wanted. Jacob, by contrast, was a, a mama's boy. It's, the Bible says he liked to be intense. He probably read a lot, listened to classical music, cooked, things like that. And, and he was actually known for cooking his good stew, all right? I like classical music, okay? So no worries, all right? Um, and so this was Jacob and Esau. And so he, Jacob had stolen everything, and because Esau wanted to kill him 20 years ago, not today, but in this time, Bible times, 20 years prior, Jacob had stolen it and had left. He fled out. He dug out, left town because of this to save his life. Now you find ourselves, fast forward 20 years, Jacob is returning to his hometown. He hasn't seen Esau, hasn't spoken to Esau, hasn't written a letter to Esau, hasn't gotten any letters from Esau, and now he has to face his big twin brother, and he sends a messenger to him. He says, hey, I'm, I'm coming home. How are you? The messenger comes back, because there's no text messaging iPhone or FaceTime here. The messenger comes back and says, Esau's coming with 400 men. What do you think that's for? <laughs> to kill him. And Jacob is gripped by fear when his brother's coming with a small army. And he's terrorized about this idea of seeing the face of Esau. Listen to Genesis 32, the prior chapter, verse 20, because this is going to be important. And you shall say, moreover, he's sending him gifts, right? So Jacob devises a plan. I'm going to send my brother, my angry brother, all of this cattle, this herd, like 550 of them. And he tells the servants, this is what you're going to say. Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him or find favor with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Did you get that? If you've been here following with us the past few weeks, this is important. Why? Because the very next section, verse 22, was our sermon last week, which was Jacob was wrestling with this man that he found out was God. And at the end of that wrestling match, he's got a broken hip and a new name. And he says, I have seen the face of God. I've come face to face with God and been delivered. Catch the scene here. Jacob, fretting, anxious, fearful, terrorized about seeing the face of his brother that he had wronged. In the process of that terror, he comes face to face with the living God, El, God Almighty, El Shaddai. He says, I've seen the face of God and been delivered. That's going to be important for our text today. And so he's fretful about seeing Esau. And you see, it wasn't ultimately Esau's acceptance of Jacob that should have concerned him. It was God's acceptance of Jacob that really mattered. Now, with his new limp, his little G-walk, and his new name, now Jacob was ready with God's acceptance to face Esau, his brother. Let's pray.
Father God, we come before you, and Lord, I pray that your name would be magnified this morning. Lord, it is hot, and Father, uh, Satan is sending heat as a messenger and trying to twist your good message to distract us. Father, may we hope in the promise of Christ that one day, Father, one day we will worship you unhindered with weakness, unhindered with distraction. One day we will behold you face to face and be satisfied. So, Father, may that be our hope. May you help us to focus. May you help us to concentrate and to see the glory of God in the face of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to see two points. One, the confrontation, and number two, the conversation. Pretty easy, pretty basic. The confrontation and the conversation. The confrontation was verses 1 through 3. It's kind of setting the stage. So this is how Jacob handled his problem with his brother. There's some good lessons for here. I'll draw us out for how we handle conflict and confrontation. All right, so what's going on is Jacob is afraid that Esau's holding a grudge after 20 years. Does Esau have good reason to hold a grudge? Yeah, he does. He's got a super good reason to hold a grudge. It's not like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. It was just a mess. No, Jacob did something wrong and he knew it. So Jacob immediately, what does he do? Chapter 32, verses 9 through 12, he prays. He prays. Jacob prays to God. I'm going to read that just so that we can have that in our mind. Verses 9, chapter 32. And Jacob said, oh God, my father Abraham. God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I love the way Jacob prays. This is the way he wrestles with God in prayer. He uses God's promises to petition God to ask him to act. You said this. You promised that you would do me good, now deliver me from Esau. Jacob prayed. I wonder if the proverb, the writer of Proverbs had Jacob in mind when he said, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Because Jacob knew it would be hard and he needed God. Second thing Jacob did, he prepared for meeting Esau by sending gifts. His forgiveness, his reconciliation with his brother offended was costly. 550 heads of cattle. The calculations, I looked them up. The calculations modern day today was this is more than $550,000. It's almost actually closer to $700,000 some approximates give. $700,000 worth of livestock that he's sending as a gift to his brother. He sent gifts. And even though Jacob, he had the promise of God. You remember before he was born, the older shall serve the younger. 
He had the promise of God, so he could have strut in there like, I'm God's chosen, dude. What's up? Right? No, he didn't do that. He, he, he sent ahead, my Lord, your, your servant. This is your servant, Jacob. And he was humble because he knew in his prior life that his pride and his deceitfulness had worked all of these things out. And so he's humbly attempting to make things right. In verse 11 of 33, he says, please accept this gift. That word gift in your Bibles in Hebrews is the word blessing, which is the exact same word in chapter 27 when he stole the blessing from his brother. What's going on? Jacob is attempting to make things right. He's saying, in effect, I've stolen your blessing. I know this has had a massive impact on your life. Here, God has blessed me. Please accept the blessing. And this is what God does, right, brothers and sisters? When God enters your life, when God enters your life, he changes you, and often you go about, one of the first things you do is you go about making right things that you have done wrong prior to meeting God, even at great cost to ourselves. This is what Jacob does. Notice, too, Jacob places his favorite son in the very back of the caravan. Do you see that? Who did he put up front? He put the servants first and their sons, and then he put Leah and her sons and children. And then in the very back, he places Rachel, his favorite wife, and Joseph, his favorite son. Why did he do that? Because he thought if Esau comes and kills everybody, then my favorite son and wife will have a chance. Maybe they'll have a chance to get away. Favoritism, friends, will wreak havoc in a family. Favoritism among children will wreak havoc in a family. Jacob's family is no exception. Once we hit Genesis 37, the the great story of Joseph, you're going to see this play out. This is the seed. He's introducing this favoritism among Jacob. And Jacob, where did he learn it? From his parents, because his parents also played favorites. It's perpetuating. Favoritism wreaks havoc in a family. Jacob approaches, and as he approaches Esau, so he's, he's prayed He's sent gifts to try and make restitution, and now he approaches and he bows himself seven times in humility. Seven times. Can you imagine this dude's approaching, and Esau's got 400 men with him, and, and his brother's over here, and just like keeps bowing. What in the world is going on? He bows himself. This is an expression of his humility because, brothers and sisters, God's promises ought to humble us and make us less demanding of our rights not puff us up and make us more demanding of our rights. Remember, he has the promise of God. He has the blessing by right. Even though he he obtained it in a sinful manner, he has all of these things, and yet he humbles himself before his brother, whom he has wronged. God's promises ought to make us humble, to esteem others as more significant than ourselves, not less. 
Perhaps Jacob learned the other truth of the Proverbs, that a soft answer turns away wrath. That's his preparation. That's the confrontation. He, he prepares to meet him. And then number two, the conversation. Man, I love this part, all right, because what's going to happen? What's gonna, the writer's been building it up, 400 men and their horses and their swords and bows, and now Jacob's here. It's all set up. What's going to happen? You're expecting. This is greater than the Count of Monte Cristo. This is greater than any sibling rivalry movie you could ever think of. This is awesome. What happens? Esau ran. You see what the text says? He ran to him. And he embraced him. You'd expect to be kill him, right? He embraced him. He fell on his neck. He kissed him. And they both started weeping. I just picture this scene with, on one side, there's 400 men. On another side, there's a family, Jacob's family, a small, paltry amount of people. And these two men in the middle just embracing themselves, just crying just sobbing, not saying any words. They both know. Where have you seen this picture before? You've seen this before in the Bible. Where have you seen it? It's almost an exact quote, almost. One word's difference. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. Actually, verse 17 through 20. This is where you've seen this. There was a son who went away to a far country. He squandered all of his father's wealth. He was serving pigs. The Bible says, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. And he arose and came to his father. Here it is. You think Jesus just pulls these parables out of thin air? Jesus is very familiar with his Old Testament. Check this out. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus knows his Bible. Jesus is playing off the beauty of this scene and saying the way sinners, the way God relates to sinners, the way God pursues sinners is a lot like this. And in his mind, he has, I have no doubt, the scenario of Esau, the offended brother, the angered one who has every right to kill and punish his younger brother, seeing him instead and running, taking. Embracing him. And, God, and Jesus says, you want to know what God's like towards people who disobey me? He's a lot like that. Then he asks two questions. First, who are these people with you? Esau, so after they're done weeping and they... Hold on, dude, there's somebody cutting onions out here, man. After they're done 
weeping and crying. Who are all these people with you? And then what did you mean by all of this company, all these cattle, and what, what was up with that? Why did you? Jacob answers, these are the children and the family that God has graciously given your servant Jacob. This is an interesting answer. Why is that an interesting answer? Because Jacob never in his whole life prior to this point has credited God with really much of anything. When he met Laban, he never any, never any mention of God. When, when he was doing all this stuff, he never spoke about the work that God was doing. Now, Jacob, new name, Israel, God fights, is recognizing the sovereign, gracious hand of God Almighty on his life. And he speaks about him. And this is what God does with us, believer. When we are rescued by Christ, we see how God intersects with the rhythms of our life, and we start to give him credit for things that we used to take credit for. And we see his loving, kind, and benevolence toward us. How do you speak with unbelievers? At work, at home, how do you speak with unbelievers? What is your conversation like, do you take advantage of these opportunities to bear witness to God's goodness to you? And Esau never actually mentions God throughout this time. And then his second question, this is important. This is actually where the focus of the passage lies, right here. What did you mean by all this company? Jacob says this, and I quote, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. To find favor or grace in the sight of my Lord. And then he says this peculiar statement. Notice the parallels with 32 and seeing the face of Esau and seeing the face of God. Here it is. Esau says, I have enough, brother. Keep. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob says, no, no, please, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand or my blessing for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. You see that? Jacob's wrestling with the angel was a prelude, was a prelude to seeing the face of Esau. Jacob desperately knew that Esau had reason to be mad at him. Check this out. He, he deserved wrath and he needed grace. Perhaps he will accept me. He wanted to be accepted. But really, his acceptance needed to happen with God first. And then, and then he was able to be accepted or find grace with Esau his brother. And on that level, in that regard, just as he had seen the face of God and been delivered, so he had seen the face of Esau and been delivered. Brothers and sisters, why did Jacob go through all of this? Because he learned and knew an important lesson that even after 20 years, 20 years. He realized that time doesn't just cancel sin. People say time heals all wounds. That's a lie. 
It's a blatant lie. Time does not heal all wounds. If they're deep enough, and those who have experienced this know this, the loss of a child, they say you never, you never go back to normal. There's a new normal of pain all the time. Some of you have lost children. You've told me those stories. The pain of being raped that we're going to see in next chapter It's a new normal. It doesn't ever go back to being the way it was before. Time doesn't merely just cancel sin. Only the blood of Christ. We're about to get to that. We'll cover that. And Esau, there's much to be commended in Esau. It's kind of weird that he actually does something really good in this passage and that he reconciles, he it appears that he is not holding a grudge against Jacob. Brothers and sisters, just a quick, quick statement on grudge. I could talk about unforgiveness, and I will. But real fast, when you start to hold a grudge against somebody, it could be against your spouse. You can let resentment build up because of how they mistreat you. It could be a brother who stole what you think was yours. It could be a, a teacher in high school. It could be your employer. When you start to hold a grudge Mark my words, it will hold you before you're done with it. It will hold you. And the most painful one to suffer through grudges is the one who's holding them. It's like one, uh, I forget who said this. They said, holding a grudge is like drinking rat poison and expecting the rat to die. It's painful to yourself because that unforgiveness, that anger, that hatred that's all inward towards them, that sees their every action, their every motive as negative, will destroy you. It doesn't just destroy your relationships. It destroys your standing before God such that Jesus says this radical statement, if you do not forgive your brother, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. I'm going to give you a warning, every single person in here, myself included. If you call yourself a Christian and you withhold forgiveness from a brother or sister, be careful. Be very careful because you have no reason to believe that you are a Christian. You might be self-deceiving your own self. And Paul and Jesus and John all give us very good reason for you to examine what exactly your hope is in. Because nobody has sinned against you as much as you have sinned against God. And if you withhold forgiveness from another person, All that you're showing is that you have not maybe tasted the grace of God that's forgiven you. Be very careful about grudges. Moving on. Jacob was doing something we all do. He was searching for grace through gifts. He was searching for grace, grasping at unmerited favor through gifts. It wasn't his gifts that ultimately won the favor of Esau. It was, I think, an answer to his prayer in Genesis 32. 
The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We've seen this with Abimelech. We've seen this with Laban, God intervening, withholding their wrath. It wasn't ultimately his gifts that did it. It was God's grace to him, his answering to prayer. Ephesians 3 tells us we should expect this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. You ever pray a prayer and not expect God to answer it and then he does? God, I need this. Holy smokes, he actually did it. (laughs) God, please deliver me from Esau, my brother, who's coming out to kill me. And he probably was. And instead of a sword or an arrow through his heart, he gets an embrace and a kiss. We should expect God to do things when we ask. Lastly, where's Christ in all of this? Where's Jesus? You've already seen some clues. I've told you some of them. Let me try and crystallize it for you. We're all like Jacob this time. All of us, every single one of us in here, like Jacob. We all want favor or grace. We all need it, and we all try to get it by giving gifts. By giving gifts. See, we all deserve death in the face of a holy God when we meet him, and so we try to give gifts, extravagant gifts, extreme displays of sacrifice, maybe time. I'm going to spend all my time doing things for God, maybe service. I'm going to serve the community out there and try and make up for this kind of bad, guilty feelings I have and make myself feel better. Maybe money. We'll give lots of money in hopes of feeling better about ourselves. And we think, well, maybe if I feel better about myself, God will feel better about me too. Brothers and sisters, God's answer to us will always be like Esau's. I have enough. Keep it. I have enough. Keep it. You think you're helping me by giving me money? Like like I need it? Like I'm going to miss it if you don't have it? I gave it to you. I have enough. Keep it. Our good works are never enough to repay the debt we owe. We need grace, though. And so here's the beauty of the gospel, friends. The beauty of the gospel of Christ. Here it is. It's not that we have to give gifts to be accepted. It's that God gave gifts to accept us. Because see, one day, one day, thousands of years after this passage, one day the greater Jacob would come. And unlike this Jacob who placed his most valuable, cherished son in the back of the caravan... God would place his son, his only son, at the front. In God's efforts to reconcile us, he placed his son at the forefront of the danger. And so Romans 5 says this, But God shows or demonstrates his love for us sinners, that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Colossians 1, 19 through 20, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth, 
making peace. How did he make peace? By the blood of the cross. God didn't make peace with us with cattle and livestock, but with the very blood of his only son. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you on the basis of Christ, first and foremost, be reconciled to God. If you are fighting with God, you are resisting his will for your life, his commands for you. If he has told you, forgive your brothers, do this, do it to honor him and for your own soul. Abraham doesn't go all the way back to Bethel. This is next week's sermon intro. He doesn't go all the way back to Bethel or Bethel like God told him to. He settles in Sakoth. I wonder if life Sakothed in Sakoth, right? I don't know, right? He settled halfway, half obedience to Christ should never be mistaken for pleasing God. His family's going to pay dearly. His daughter will pay dearly for his half-hearted obedience. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Follow him and come to Christ. And then, brothers and sisters, I plead with you, if you have grudges against one another, somebody, as God in Christ has forgiven you, please forgive one another. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful Father, as we sang at the beginning of this sermon, your blood has washed away our sins. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for satisfying God's wrath to us such that as the father and the prodigal son ran to meet him, Lord, that even now there are some in here that you will run to meet and you'll embrace them. Lord, I pray that you would draw them. And Lord, may we see that though we were once your enemies, enemies of God and enemies of others, that now we're seated at the same table in Christ. Would you be honored in this time of invitation as we praise you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.